Who here wants to be a loser? Well, congratulations. Do you know there are winners and losers in life? When, when I grew up in, in the home I grew up in, it all comes back to the your special plate, right? I, I grew up and there are many things I appreciate about my parents and one in particular about my dad is he didn't sugarcoat things. You see, there were people who won and there were losers and the world was full of losers and if you didn't want to be a loser, you had to work your tail off. Some good sound advice in that. But did you know that, that even in even in our relationship with the Lord, there are winners and there are losers. It doesn't mean the Lord loves you less, but there are some who are winners and there are some who are losers. We're going to begin to look at this today in 1 Corinthians, second half of chapter 9. And uh, chapter 8 through chapter 10 are all tied together. So it's kind of frustrating because I can't quite finish off the the thought that Paul is communicating each week, unless you all want to agree to stay till four. I know Dylan is keen on that idea. So if everyone else is in agreement, I'll see if I can go four and a half hours. I won't. But what we're going to look at today is, remember, we're, we're dealing with Christian liberty. Freedoms we have. And Paul talked about in chapter eight, looking at food sacrifice to idols. The issue isn't can I or can't I, it's should I or shouldn't I. And then last week in the first half of chapter 9, Paul made a, or gave a living illustration of his right to receive financial support from the Corinthians and how he refused that support, and he explained the reason why, to remove any stumbling block from the gospel. Well, in today's text and next week in the first half of chapter 10, Paul's going to show us the, the how and the why of denying self, the how and the why of sometimes we should or shouldn't. And this week he's going to talk about how it affects others, and next week about how it affects us. So these very much go together. What we're going to see here in in this text is self-denial, self-control, and then motivation to do it. So let me just get into the text and we'll see what we can do with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some." Let's, well, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Let's just stop there for a minute. Paul wanted to be a winner. You hear that word five times in that, in that section. Win, 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 win. And then he throws in the word save, which is synonymous. Well, look at what Paul's doing. I love verse 19. It says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. You know those really strange abstract verses back in the first five books of scripture. The ones you read and you're like, huh? There's one about a slave getting his head put up against the door jam and an awl being slammed through his earlobe. You know that one? Flip there a minute. Exodus 21. Watch this. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage when you put it in context. Exodus chapter 21. Right at the, right at the start there in verse 1. It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. You start reading, it's like, what the heck does this have to do with anything, and why is it in the Bible? When you buy a Hebrew slave, 
he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he, will show, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now watch this. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall, excuse me, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, Everything in Scripture points to Christ. But you have to see what the life of Christ was about before you realize what's going on here. Paul says, keep your finger there. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, I'm a slave of Christ with a hole in my ear. Right? He was set free. This slave here in 21 is set free. What does the slave say to his master? He says, I don't want to go free. I love you and I want to stay with you. So the master takes him to the door and he puts a hole in his ear. Well, do you know what being a Christian is really all about? It's about taking a hole through the earlobe as a slave of Christ. You're submitting joyfully to the master because of his incredible love for you. Do you see that? You with me there? So then you take it a step further and you move into Mark 10. And Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul is saying right here in verse 19, I'm free from all, which he is. This is what we've been looking at from eight on. It's not a can I or can I. Christ has done it all. But because he's free from all, he's made himself a servant to all because that's what the Lord calls him to. And he's a joyful galley slave of Christ. And the Lord calls him to be a servant of all, to go out and serve them, right? To give his life for ransom of many so that he might win more of them. That sums up our lives as Christians. That's what we're called to be. Joyful slaves. The word in the Greek that, that is often translated as servant in your Bible, doulos. It means slave. It's more of an issue of political correctness, why it doesn't say slave in your Bible. But Jesus' offer is, you can be a slave to the devil and go to hell, or you can be a slave of mine and have eternal life. You choose. And we want that middle ground. Well, how about we're, 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 uh, you know, we're, we're partners, yeah. You can be God and I'll be kind of your sidekick, but, but it's a 50-50 partnership. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the master, you're the slave. He says, but you're going to want to have a hole in your ear because I love you far more than you can gather. Do you see that? And little by little, as we trust more and more, and we'll get to this more so at the end, we desire to do exactly what he calls us to because we know of his incredible love for us. So Paul says... To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Properly understand the context. When Paul says win, he's talking about God working through him to save people. Paul is not saving anyone. Paul is being used to save people. That's just unpacked clearly all the way up to this point. But look at this, and and I want you to pay attention, because this is is difficult to specifically apply to each of us. You're going to have to do some legwork on your own with the Holy Spirit. But watch what goes on here. He's dealing here with, with the whole concept of self-denial. To the Jews I became as a Jew. Acts 16. This, this, is, this is a bit concerning, um, if you think about it. In Acts 16, Paul gets to this place called Lystra and Derby, And he meets this guy named Timothy. You know this story? Now, I preached through Acts a couple years ago, so I would suspect anyone here would have it all memorized. Come on now. And he meets this guy, Timothy. And do you remember what Paul did to Timothy? 
No, worse. He circumcised him. He circumcised Timothy. Now, Timothy wasn't like a, an eight-day-old kid when you don't know what's going on. Timothy was like a, a, a robust young gentleman. And Paul circumcised Timothy. Why did he circumcise Timothy? Because he was going to take Timothy with him on his, on his missionary journey. And the first place Paul always went was to the synagogue. And without going into detail, it was easier at that time to identify who was circumcised and who wasn't. And the Jews would have nothing to do with uncircumcised people. So Timothy and could have said, hey, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm free from all. You ain't doing that, buddy. But Timothy submitted to it. Paul desired for it to happen, not out of cruelty, but out of love, because Paul and Timothy, you'll see, wanted to become all things to the Jews so that they might win some of the Jews. Do you see, do you see that cost? Do you see that freedom they gave up? If I was Timothy in his situation, I would probably be like, whoa, 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 whoop. No, I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for your trip. But for some reason, Timothy was willing to go through that. There's something crazy going on there. And, and we'll see, was Timothy crazy? Was Paul out of his mind? But he set aside this, this liberty. He set aside this freedom. Timothy didn't have to be circumcised. But he chose to be circumcised out of love as a slave to Christ so that he might win the Jews. You see that? So then he goes on here. He says, to those, well, here, notice this too. I became as one under the law, though not not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Those are the Jews. Paul is, um, is under the law in a sense, as you'll see here. talks about to those outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. The, the law does have a purpose to Christians. The, we talked about it a little bit last night. The law comes to convict the non-believer. But for the Christian, the law comes to guide us. And Paul understood that very well. So He's not saying, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm just going to go crazy. He's saying, I'm joyfully submitting to the law, empowered by God to keep the law for the glory of God, right? So to the Jews, he becomes like a Jew. He steps into Jewish customs. There are certain things he wouldn't do. Paul would not celebrate Yom Kippur with Jews. Do you know why he wouldn't celebrate Yom Kippur? It's a day of atonement. Jews gather and they celebrate looking forward to the coming of Messiah to wash away the sins of all, right? Paul's not going to celebrate that because Messiah has come and the sins are washed away for all who would believe. You don't have to sacrifice an animal anymore. Christ has come. Paul's not going to hang out at Yom Kippur. But Paul will go, and you'll see this in a couple minutes, he'll participate in certain rituals and practices like circumcision to be able to gain credibility with these Jews to win an opportunity to share the gospel. Tracking with me here? He says, to those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Same premise. Paul's saying, I, I interact with these Gentiles in these gray areas. We're talking about gray area issues, right? Paul's not going to go to the temple of Aerodite and worship a, a pagan god with these Gentiles, but Paul hangs out in places like the Areopagus. And if you look at Paul's speech in the Areopagus, and you read, you read through scripture carefully, you'll see Paul often will quote sources of, of, of literature that were read by pagan people. He was well-read in the pagan culture. He would hang out in the Areopagus. Did Paul have to go to the Areopagus? This is where they worshiped their false gods, and they, and they discussed ideas. He didn't have to go, but he met people where they were, how they were in those gray areas that he was able to. He accommodated people to find that common ground to win an opportunity. Watch this one here. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Who are the weak? It's actually a, 
heavily debated topic and commentaries out there. I'm sure you guys are up late at night reading the, the theologians unpacking this, this who the weak refers to. It's really quite simple. The weak refers to weak believers. You, you see this starting in 8. He's talking about the weak brothers and sisters who can't eat the idol meat. It's an interesting thing to notice here. Sometimes we need to suspend our liberty, and sometimes we need to win an opportunity to share the gospel with weak people, weak Christians. You want to know what a weak Christian looks like? Well, just go walk around. There are actual believers who stagnate in immaturity because they're not being cared for, fed, or, or they're receiving teaching that's not accurate. And they're genuine believers, but they're just not living as they're called to live. Well, Paul runs into some of these, and this one's really neat. Acts 21. Look, look at the extent to which he goes. In Acts 21, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit is, is working, and, and many people are coming to believe. And in 17, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went into, with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many, look at this, thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So Jerusalem is, you got the Holy Spirit's working crazy. Jews are coming to believe in abundance. They're all zealous for the law. Whoa, 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 what? They're zealous for the law, a.k.a. They're, they're immature in their faith, right? They, they're law keepers still. And they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. It's just simply not true. It's a rumor that had been spreading. So you have baby believers in Jerusalem. They're Jews. They're weak. And they're still keeping the law. That's the culture they grew up in. They have to keep the law. It's what they've always been indoctrinated in. So there's causing this division. So James has this great idea. He says, hey, Paul, listen, Let, let's remove a stumbling block. Why don't you go and take this vow with four of these guys? It's a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was often, they, they could go for days, weeks, months, or life, life long. There were some in the Bible who had a lifelong Nazarite vow. You know who any of them are? Samson? Samuel? Yeah, they, they, these were lifelong. John the Baptist, you had refraining from, from eating and doing certain things. You didn't cut your hair, right? Most people took much shorter-term ones, and it would be at a time when God poured great abundance and blessing upon you as a thanks offering. You would take this vow, you'd go through ritual cleansing, and at the end of the vow period, you'd shave your head off and you'd offer your hair to God as a sacrifice. Obviously, he wouldn't be very pleased with what some of us have to offer. I have a little skimpy dustpan I'd bring over. Other people would have a more robust offering to give to him. Do you have to do this to be right with God? No. But the Jews are doing this because it's what they're used to. It's, it's the legalistic practice they kept, and they're genuine believers. So James says, hey, Paul, why don't you go join them? If, if I was Paul, perhaps I might say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why, why do I want to go ahead and do that? That's incredibly inconvenient. These baby believers need to grow up, and they need to see that Christ alone died for their sins, and it doesn't matter what they do, and they need to put aside these ridiculous ritualistic practices. I'm not doing it. Hmm. Right? That's how a mature Christian responds. That's not what Paul did. Paul said, sounds good. You know what? I'm going to pay for them too. <laughs> what? You, Paul, that's expensive. No, I'm going to pay for it too. So Paul goes through this practice and he's going to shave his head and, and make an offering. And I'll let you read the rest of the story. But do you see how Paul accommodates the weaker brother? Too often we want to tell the weaker brother or sister, you know, buck up champ. This is what it's all about. But Paul's saying, no, accommodate them. And why is he doing this? He says here, I've become all things 
to all people that by all means I might save some. What does this look like in your life? There are lost people all around, and there are immature Christians all around. Our job isn't to kind of try to force them into maturity or wait for them to come to us. Look, Paul's not saying, I sat in my house and waited for all people who wanted to come to come to hear the gospel. Right? That's not what he said. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul's saying, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. He went out into the great unwashed masses. And he interacted with them, and he became like them as far as he could in his Christian liberty with a purpose so that he might win an opportunity to share the gospel. How do you do that? Well, here's the area where you need to prayerfully come before the Lord. Right? You were sharing how your, your dad rides a bike. You get a nice, see, I like this one for me. But you, you ride a motorcycle. You, you join some other guys who ride. And, and once a week, once a month, you go out and you build relationships. But what's the motivation riding the bike? Is it the feeling of the fresh air in your face? No, it shouldn't be. You can enjoy that. Do you know God actually allows us to enjoy things as we serve him? This is a dirty little secret. Don't tell too many people. He actually delights in giving us wonderful things. He's not a miser. He, he, he delights in pouring blessings upon us. He really does. So you ride that bike and you enjoy the wind in your face and you enjoy interacting with other guys who have similar interests, but ultimately your goal is to win an opportunity to share the gospel so that they might be saved. Maybe you're at a stage of life where you physically can't ride bikes or time-wise you can't ride bikes. Well, you know there are ways for you to interact with people, so you know what you do. You go out and you interact with them, but not for these relationships of mutual benefit. It's for a relationship with an agenda. I have an agenda with every non-believer I interact with, and I'll tell them. I have an agenda in this interaction, and my agenda is to love you sacrificially to win an opportunity to share the gospel with you with some credibility. That's an agenda I'm bringing to bear. I can explain to them why I have that agenda. In the flesh, I'm just going to use people. What do, you, what do you have to offer me? What type of joy factor? How can you elevate my joy factor? Because if you bring the joy factor down, well, I don't care to deal with you. If you bring the joy factor up, then I'll interact with you. I've always had a problem, affected me in the corporate, in the corporate world with uh, networking. I, I just, I wasn't good at it because I felt like I'm using you and you're using me and this just doesn't seem right. But I guess it's okay if everybody knows. It's, it's not sinful to network. Don't misunderstand me. But the, 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 the culmination of it was when a, a guy I knew was going to a funeral for a guy who was trying to get some business from because the guy's mom died. And I'm just like, that, that's sick. He's like, well, why? I, I care. Like, what's his mom's name? I, I don't know. How much is this a business? Oh, I can tell you that. See, it's, we, we're called to live differently than the world. If you work in the world, you're going to have to network in the world. You go as far as you can go in your Christian liberty. But don't use the people. Do you see what I'm saying there? The agenda has to be true, and here's what it falls down to. Compromise and condescension. Compromise. We talked about this morning. You know what compromise is? When you set aside the truth. Condescension is when you set aside liberty. The problem we have in the flesh is we like to try to trick ourselves to believe that compromise is really condescension. It goes like this. Well, listen... I'm going to start a new evangelistic outreach called the NFL Loves Jesus. So what I'm going to do is every Sunday, I'm going to travel around to, to football stadiums in the area and go to the games to hang out with people who are probably going to hell so I can build relationships with them. You know what the problem is? I've just compromised. Why? Well, I'm telling God on a clear command, I'm not, I'm not going to gather regularly with your people. I'm not going to worship you on Lord's Day. I'm going to just disregard the entirety of the Sabbath and I'm going to football. 
And what I've done is I've deceived myself, because you know the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, and I've compromised trying to argue it under condescension. Do you see what I'm saying there? They say, well, wait, wait, Pastor, can a Christian go to a football game? Well, sure. It's not a can or can't, is it? It's a should or a shouldn't. In all the situations we run into our lives, we need to be very careful. Are we compromising or are we condescending? Are we setting aside truth or are we setting aside liberty? And do you want to know how you know the difference? This and this. In the abundance of counselors is found much wisdom, and here's where you find truth. You can't know God's will if you don't know Scripture, and you will deceive yourself if you try to make decisions outside of relationships with other believers. Paul was not an isolated Christian. I would love to have Paul as someone to, to talk to and, and seek wisdom. Dude knew Scripture, right? This is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had Bible memory. Not, he was in verses. It was whole books, right? But just that's not enough because even Paul had a deceitful heart. Compromise, setting aside truth. Condescension, setting aside liberty. So what Paul's saying is, to the Jews, I condescended. To the Gentiles, I condescended. To the weak, I condescended. Now, he doesn't say I compromised. I compromised. Too often in that verse, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That, that, is, that is the way most people try to share the gospel. Well, we'll lighten it up a little bit. You don't, don't talk about sin. Make it fun. Put a lot of stuff around. What, whatever it takes. Give the people. You want to know a phrase I hate? Felt needs. You know, touch on people's felt needs. Make it relevant. Well, the felt needs, people are spiritually dead. They can't feel their need. You've got to give them with the God-given need. What I'm trying to say here is this becoming all things to all people by all means is about condescension, not compromise. Now, this is where it comes together. How do you do it? Would you want to be, for the men, would you want to be circumcised for God's glory if you weren't circumcised? <laughs> That's a great membership requirement to just make sure, right? You women think you have a bad with childbirth. I can't even joke. I've seen that happen too much. It's worse. Self-discipline. Don't you like that word? Self-discipline. I played sports for a lot of years. Some of you did too. And I remember baseball in the winter, we would be packed into these horrible indoor facilities to train. And I remember being in indoor batting cages one night with my good friend Scott Ranini. And we stayed late. It was probably 9.30, 10 o'clock at night in the middle of the winter because we were working on our swings going into spring training. We wanted scholarships. We wanted to play ball. We both wanted to play pro ball. So we spent a lot of time working through the winter. And I remember as we're in the cages, my right foot was, was starting to ache. But I, but I really wanted to work through that evening on it. And we finished up, and I was, I was taking my shoe off, and I had bled through two pair of socks and a shoe. It wasn't fun, but I did it because I wanted to put forth the effort to be prepared to be the best. I wanted to be a winner on the field. There were other kids who had some talent, but never wanted to put in effort. I don't know if he might listen, so I won't reference his name, but, but this kid, he was talented. He played a quarterback at a, a Division I school for college, but he put in no effort. It, it, was, it was sad. He was funny. He was a class clown. He could make you laugh. But he wouldn't put in any effort. He had no self-discipline. Well, the reality, though, is in Christ, we're not dealing with personal talent levels. We're dealing with the power of the Holy Spirit who will work through us based off of self-discipline. You will not want to condescend to the needs of others based on setting aside your liberty on your own. Paul, this is not natural what Paul did. 
It's not natural to suspend your freedom. What's natural is to say, well, I don't have to do it. Paul's difference is, well, I get to do it for God's glory. Do you see that? And he does this, and he shows us right here how he does this by self-discipline. Look at this, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? I don't think that's true, is it? Everybody gets the trophy. I've been to these things with my kids. You run a race, you come in dead last, they got that one little trophy. I make my kids throw them in the trash if they don't win. I don't really do that. It's a good idea. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Listen to this part, last part. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The world tells us, gratify the flesh. You deserve it, and you deserve it now, and you can order it on overnight delivery from Amazon.com. Right? We live in a culture where you want something, you get something, and you can get it even if you can't afford it. Right? Isn't that why God invented credit cards? The world tells us, gratify, set aside self-control. What does God tell us in Galatians 5.16? Right? The exact opposite. Deny the flesh. This is not easy. Here's a dirty little secret. Being a follower of Christ requires hard work, self-denial, and self-discipline. Is that appealing? It is in the long run. It's not appealing in the short run. What we're called to is ordinary daily obedience over the long haul. We're, we're in a culture now where, you know, having young kids, it just I got issues, folks. Jesus has to come back soon. I hear friends of ours who have young kids, they'll make these references. So-and-so is going to change the world. No, so-and-so is going to change the world. So-and-so is probably going to be an average, ordinary nobody that nobody knows about. And it's okay. Did you know that? It's okay. Our goal in life shouldn't be to change the world. Our goal in life should be to serve God daily through the monotonous, ordinary obedience. Do you want to know why? Because through people like that, God does incredible things. If so-and-so changes the world, right, what's motivating them is, look at me, I changed the world. If you don't know who I am, but God worked through me to change the world, praise God. Who led uh, D.L. Moody? Who led D.L. Moody to faith? Who led Billy Graham to faith? Who, who, you, know, you don't know these people. These are world changers. You know who Rosa Parks is? You better know who Rosa Parks is. Do you know Rosa Parks, when she was a little girl, said, when I'm older, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to ride a bus, and I'm going to change the world through my actions on a bus. You know what Rosa Parks did? She got up one morning, she got on a bus. Very ordinary action. Read through Scripture. Look, look at Moses. When Moses was a little kid, he, he said, Pharaoh, I'm going to change the world. No, that's not what he said. He, he was tending sheep in the wilderness. He's out there, you know, he's reading all these self-help books by, by these positive, self-talk, motivational. You can change the world. Are you an ordinary camel tender? You don't have to be. You can be a world changer. No, Moses walked in daily obedience. Hard work, self-denial, self-discipline. You're like, well, th- this isn't fun. Who's going to want to do this? Well, people who do it and stick with it and see who they're serving and what he's doing. You see, Paul uses an athletic illustration. The Isthmian Games took place every three years in Corinth. So these people wouldn't know what he's talking about. There were the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. In the Isthmian Games, 
to compete, you had to, you had to train, show evidence of training for 10 months straight before, and then for 30 days on site under observation before the games. And these people would run, and they had one pine wreath. And at the end of these events, the winner of the event would get a pine wreath. I mean, are you going to train for a pine stinking wreath? It lasts about a week, and that's all you're getting. But these people would discipline their bodies. They'd restrict their diet. They'd train for, for probably well over a year to win this pine wreath. I'll tell you, this is a true story. I know people who've competed in the Olympics. And I know people who've won Olympic medals. And do you know how pathetic it really is? Now, I say that partly because I can never win an Olympic medal. So if I drag them down, I feel better. Watch. These people train for years. My sister used to swim with them, swim with one on her high school team. And I remember my, my mom would give my sister grief. Why can't, why, you know, my sister always finished second to this girl. Why can't you just beat her? Why, what is wrong with you? You need to, say, oh, finally you're saying, mom, see, she won an Olympic medal. So you win these medals, you train so hard, you, you sacrifice so much stuff, you spend time away from your family for months on end, and do you know what happens if you hit the creme de la creme and you win it all, you know what you get? A whoop-de-doo gold medal. And then the lights go down, you get some interviews on TV, you maybe write a book a few people read, and the medal goes in a drawer, or it gets hung on a wall. That's it. It's really quite depressing when you stop and think about it. Because then you go back and you meet these people, 20 years later, they still have that same medal sitting out there. Most of the time, they don't even look at it. They have to remember where they put it. Some of them had it put on a, a frame, and it's up on the wall. It's gold medal from the Olympics. So these guys, think how much effort goes in to win this gold medal or this pine wreath. And this is what Paul's saying. But listen, guys, we're not running for a pine wreath, a.k.a. a gold medal. We're running for an incorruptible crown. You get to celebrate that crown properly day by day for all of eternity. You get to cast that crown at the feet of Christ as you worship him in eternity. It's not a stinking medal that goes on a wall. I remember my kids, my parents always tried to move me out of their house. And they box my things up. And my room is, I, we have to take a church trip, so you all believe me. My room was no evidence that I ever lived in. It's been stripped clean. Well, the, the, the best was when my dad had packed up all of my trophies. And he says, what do you want to do with these? I said, well, I want to leave them here so when I come to visit, it's like the kids could be like, oh, look, you lived here. He's like, I don't want them. He said, I'm going to pitch them or you can take them. So I took them. And it wasn't too long before my kids claimed them as their own. And they had decorated their dressers with these trophies. Like, wow, you guys were really good at baseball. Well, then they found a ratchet set, and one day I came into their room, and I didn't know this happens, but if you turn trophies over and you start to unscrew them, they all start to fall apart. And their floor was covered in little brass baseball men and, and these shiny plastic pieces and marble slabs all over their floor. They had completely torn apart my trophies. But you want to know something? It's okay. But all that effort I put in to play sports for all those years was just laying on their floor. It was pointless. So Paul says here, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Right? Now, as Christians, listen closely to this. We compete. We run in a race. A lot of us think the Christian life is a cruise. Oh, yeah, I came to faith in Christ. Where's the chaise? And we just kind of lay back and wait to die. That's exactly what Paul's saying we should not be doing, because those are called losers. They're saved losers, but they're losers. The winners run the race. 
They run it so they can win the prize. When you get to heaven, they're not going to be a big pitch. Welcome to heaven. Here's the incorruptible crowns. Everyone grab one on the way in. No. Some people, when they meet the Lord, are going to receive a crown. It's going to be awesome. Some people aren't going to get a crown. It's going to be really depressing because you could have had the crown. It's not just one winner for the Christian. Every Christian can be a winner if they will run in the manner they're called to run. You say, that's hard work. It's really hard work, but it's really worth it. Look at this. In a race, only, uh, only one receives a prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Can an Olympic sprinter eat a chocolate sundae before a race? Could they? Yeah, who's a, who's a big sprinter? I don't even know their names, but when I was growing up, remember Carl Lewis, right? Carl Lewis was, was the man. He was fast, and he wore freaky sunglasses. But could you imagine if he's sitting on the track, they do that thing where they, like, kick their legs, and somehow their knees don't blow out. And I used to emulate this as a kid. I ran a 10-second, 10-yard a, a dash. But imagine if he's sitting there eating a chocolate ice cream sundae before the race. Now, can he do that? Sure. Should he do that? No, because you'll throw up at 50 yards and you're not going to win the race. Well, that's what, exactly what Paul's saying here. Every athlete exercises self-control in what? In all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. Everything we consume affects us. Did you know that? Everything we think about. Take every thought captive. Do not be conformed to this world. All these, all these areas where we conform, where we compromise where we consume, they affect us and they make us fat, out of shape Christians. We, we get lazy. We don't want to run. And as a result, we're not going to win the prize. Paul says here, I do not run aimlessly. He changes all of a sudden from, from running to boxing. But I box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control. As a believer, we still struggle with this thing called the flesh. He's saying, I'm blackening the eye of the flesh. Part of you will desire to work hard and run in obedience to Christ. The other part, eat the chocolate sundae. No, I want to run well. Eat the sundae. You're going to deal with this, so you have to tell the eat the sundae. Shut up. You're away from me. You need to discipline. You deserve a break. Why don't you just sit down and watch that inappropriate sitcom? It's no big deal. Can you as a Christian? You can watch whatever you want as a Christian. Should you as a Christian? I, you have to deal with that with the Lord. It's a race, it's not a cruise. We're called to deny the flesh. You say, this is hard. Well, here's the question. Why is Paul doing this? Watch this. This is why we will do it. Are we all called to live this way or just like the super Christians, like the apostle types? Now, Paul isn't a regular Christian, right? Paul's an apostle. He was more powerful, more robust. God loved him more. God used him better. We're just ordinary, average, insignificant Christians, right? Is that true? What's the difference between Paul and, say, Rene? Same potential. What did God do for Paul that he didn't do for Rene? What did Paul have to offer God that Rene didn't have to offer God? See where I'm going here? Paul, by God's grace, received forgiveness just like we did. Paul had the same thing. Jesus did the same thing for Paul that he's done for us. We have the same ability and same potential as Paul. Now, you're not an apostle. You can't perform signs and wonders. That's a different office. 
But as far as your ability to be used by God mightily for his glory, you can do it too. Do you know what the problem is? We don't run the race to win the prize because we're, we're indoctrinated in this culture that says everyone's a winner. It doesn't matter what you do. Try your best. That's good enough. Don't read scripture. Don't, don't, don't commit relationally to other believers. You just do what you think you want to do and it's going to be okay. And you're going to be a believer, but there might be a problem here because you could be, you see that word right there? I myself should be what? Disqualified. There is, and you'll see this next week, I hope it scares the boots off you because it scared the boots off of me. Do you know, sometimes God says to believers, get on the bench, I'm not using you anymore. And he won't use you. You're a real life Christian, but he just won't use you. Sometimes he says to Christians, and I'll set you up with this this week so you'll be better prepared for it next week. Sometimes he says to Christians, you're not running, you're going to die now. Say, wait, wait, wait. God kills Christians because they're, hmm, read 10, get ready for that next week. Now, you don't go through life here afraid. I don't want you to be like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I sinned this week. Do I have to be afraid God's going to kill me? Chill out a minute. It's not, just, just understand it in context. 2 Timothy 2.20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Watch this. Why did Paul want to win people so badly? What was he hoping to win them to and save them from? Everybody with me here? This is important. What was he hoping to win them to and save them from? There's this thing called the wrath of God. See, Paul believed that God's wrath would one day come. In fact, in Romans 5, 9, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he penned, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, Paul lived in a world where he knew that one day the wrath of God would be brought down. Do you know how horrible a thing that is? Think of the, the worst thing you can imagine and then magnify it infinitely. It's a, a court, you know, Jonathan Edwards, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. He pulled that out of scripture. There is nothing more frightening than meeting God face to face as an enemy of his. He will utterly destroy and annihilate you, not because he delights in it, but because he is just and holy. And nobody has to die that way. In verse 23 here it says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, Look at this, that I may share with them, share with them in its blessings. Do you see that? He wants to save people from the wrath of God so that he can share with them in the blessings of God as children of God. Do you, do you see that? Do you see how wonderful this is? So Paul's saying, I'm going to work my tail off. Not to be right with God. I'm right with God by Christ alone. But I'm going to work my tail off out of love and gratitude because I used to be under the wrath of God. I was going to spend eternity apart from God, being, being destroyed by God, uh, being, being, being dealt with as a sinner before God by God himself. And Jesus came in my place and took that upon himself. The worst part of Jesus' death wasn't the physical death. You guys know that. It wasn't the fact that nails hurt going through your forearms. There were hundreds of thousands of people who were nailed to a cross. It's not that impressive. The hard part for Christ was that God turned from him. He took the wrath of God and their perfect fellowship was broken. For all of eternity, they had perfect fellowship. And it was broken 
and the wrath of God for all sins of those who believe was poured out upon Christ. And that's what Paul was going to face. And Paul, realizing what Christ did for him, and then the blessings that come as being a child of God, forgiven, reconciled, cared for perfectly, indwelt by God himself, given a purpose in life, able to please God, in eternity with God. Do you see all this stuff? He says, I want to do whatever it takes to make other people aware of who they are, what God has done, and what they can become. And I'll do anything and everything in my power to make that happen. Why? Because he had, he had walked in obedience to God. He had come to know God well, and the better he knew God, the more he desired for others to know God as well. Y'all tracking with me here? How did Paul get to that point? On the road to Damascus, when the Lord just knocked him to the ground. Paul didn't hop up when the scales fell off his eyes as a perfectly sanctified believer. He was still, he says, oh, what a wretched man I am. He wasn't joking. As you mature in your faith, you actually are able to identify more sin in your life, and you realize you're actually far worse than you thought you were. Paul was a bad dude. He had flesh issues. You know, don't miss that. But in the daily monotonous obedience, in the daily setting aside of liberties out of love, Paul came to know the Lord well. And as he knew him better, the Lord's will became Paul's will. Do you see that? So we are called to a particular mission. And our mission is to seek and save that which is lost. Do you have to? Share the gospel to be a Christian? No. Should you? Yeah. Why would you not want to? Well, it boils down to this. First, we've not truly been impressed with the gospel. I, I think for many Christians, we, it becomes ho-hum. I fall into this at times. Oh, Jesus loves me. He died on the cross for me. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Right? What happens is we, we conform to the world. We get distracted. We, we start to compromise in little areas. We don't believe that God is really who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do, and we creep. You know, well, well I'm not going to obey you there. I'm, I'm not going to obey you. This is a history of God's people. We have these slow creeps. Look at next week. These slow creeps in the wilderness among the Israelites, and they were like, why does God seem so distant? Well, he didn't move. You kept turning. You see that? The gospel becomes bigger as we are, as we are reminded of it, as we walk in obedience to God, and accept the fact that a lot of this maturing is just daily, monotonous obedience, and you don't always know what you're going to get. It's kind of like parenting, isn't it? You start out with this cute little baby, and then they're going to grow up into these grown things. And you're going to put in, yeah, Kim, how many nights were you up listening to him screaming, right? And, and Dan was up too all the time with you. But you don't know what you're going to get as the end result. But you try to do your best in the moment. Well, here's the difference between being a Christian and being a parent. You don't just have to try your best. You got clear guidance. You got clear power. And it's joyful because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It's the daily obedience we come to know the Lord and our desires begin to change. We start to see people differently. And as we live this way, our desire becomes Luke 19.10. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Do you know where Jesus is today? the right hand of the Father. So who's seeking and saving that which is lost while he's at the right hand of the Father? You say, well, why would he do that? That's messed up. That might... No, it's not messed up. It's just what he said. It's serious business, guys. But to seek and save that which is lost requires self-denial and self-discipline. And if we will do it, if we will run the race, we'll win the, we'll win the prize, the incorruptible crown. And even better than that, Perhaps we might win some people and share with them in the blessings of the gospel. 
It happens as we start to see people as God sees them. And that doesn't happen until we see ourselves as God sees us, apart from Christ and through Christ. Now next week, this gets wrapped into completion as we get in chapter 10. I struggled as I was putting this together because it's just not, it's not a clear, you know, A, B, C, do, don't do. But most of our life as Christians isn't. What I hope you get out of this is, is a wonderful reminder of, of what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ, and, and a more robust understanding of what Christ calls us to and how we pull it off. Last night at Bible study, we, we talked about seven Seven things a, a successful evangelist does. Remember that? We looked at Paul's life. Well, I guess in a sense, there's number eight. Self-discipline and self-denial. If we're going to be used by God mightily, where he receives the glory, if we're going to truly see people saved and grow in their faith, if you really want to change the world, this is how you do it. But you realize it's just not you changing the world. It's God through you. Do you see that? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the fact that you have given us this awesome responsibility of seeking and saving the lost. I don't know why you would entrust it to us. Sometimes I look at Paul and I think, wow, I could never do that. But Paul was a really bad dude. Paul was a hard case. He wanted to kill Christians. And then somehow he was willing to kill himself so that people could become Christians. This was not a... Uh, a change that Paul brought upon himself. This was a divine, miraculous work. This was a man who was deeply convicted of sin because you convicted him of it. It was a man who was robustly impressed with the reality of who you are because you revealed yourself to him. And this was a man who walked in grateful and joyful obedience because he understood what you did for him. And God, that's what we all have from you too. We think of ourselves as good too often, but we really weren't. Even now, we don't realize how bad we are in the flesh, nor do we realize how righteous we are in Christ, perfectly righteous. We don't have to prove ourselves to you. We don't have to earn your favor. We don't have to impress you with our good deeds so that you love us more. You love us perfectly because Christ died for us. You see us as if we've lived his life. And God, I pray we would rejoice in that truth every day of our lives here and forevermore. But I pray we would also understand that we're slaves of yours. We're called to some serious business. The evil one loves to see us distracted. He loves to see us disqualified. He loves to keep our eyes out of scripture. He loves to sever our relationships with other believers. He loves to entertain us and keep our minds busy so we don't meditate upon your word, store it up in our heart, do the hard work of maturing in our faith. And as a result, we are robbed not just of the incorruptible crown, but the joyful life you call us to. God, help us trust you more fully. I pray that we are encouraged by you alone, that we are able to rejoice in all circumstances, that we don't see who you are through the stuff, but see stuff through the reality of who you are. God, do a mighty work in all of us. Break up the fallow ground of our hearts and help us pound upon that ground through your strength as well. I pray the gospel would take root vigorously and robustly and much fruit would be born in our lives. I pray that people would look at us and see something so strange and unique that they might ask for a reason of the hope that we have. And I pray we might set aside every liberty that we have so we might become all things to all people so that some might be saved. God, I like to live for me. I pray you would help me live for you only. As John the Baptist says, I pray that you would help us all decrease 
so you might increase. Lord Jesus, we are not worthy to untie the strap of your sandal, but you've made it so we might call you friend, so we might call you brother, because you desire to spend eternity with us. And there are other lost sheep out there still this very day. I pray we would look at the world as such, that we would go out boldly into the world and offer up our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, that we might, we might be salt and light into this dark world, that we would boldly and lovingly proclaim the gospel, and that you would use us as holy vessels to bring many people to come to believe for your glory, our joy, and their sake. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.